Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about our sponsor. The University of Dallas is a premier Catholic liberal arts institution, renowned for its rigorous core curriculum and thriving graduate programs. Careers in ministry, teaching, business, humanities, and science are formed here. With campuses in Texas and Rome, Italy, students begin their pursuit of a life well-lived. We have two alums of Dallas here at First Things on staff, and they are both superb. For more information on the University of Dallas, visit udallas.edu. That's udallas.edu. Richard Garnett is professor of law at Notre Dame, where he also directs the program on church, state, and society. He has written widely on issues of law and religion. Uh, He's known to First Things readers, including as co-author Religion and the American Constitutional Experiment, which is in multiple editions of that volume. He joins us today to discuss a recent Supreme Court decision, the case of Groff versus DeJoy. Welcome, Professor Garnett. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be with you. Well, we'll jump right into this case. Give us first the circumstances of the case. What's the background of it? Yeah, so the background uh, is an evangelical Christian uh, rural mail carrier. That's what Mr. Groff's job was. And uh, when he signed on to this position, um, he didn't have to work on Sundays. And then, uh, thanks to a deal with Amazon, uh, you might have noticed that the uh, Postal Service has been delivering packages for Amazon on Sundays now for a few years. And uh, as a result of that new arrangement, Mr. Groff was in a tricky situation because for religious reasons, he doesn't want to work uh, on Sundays. He thinks it's uh, against his his sincerely held religious beliefs to engage in work and to engage in uh, transport of worldly goods, I think it said in the case. So uh, uh, he was disciplined for not working on Sundays, and then eventually he resigned. Uh, and then he brought a lawsuit under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Now, the Civil Rights Act of 64 did a lot of things, but one of the things it did was it banned discrimination uh, because of religion in the workplace. This is uh, Title VII that's probably familiar to a lot of, uh, a lot of your listeners. And uh, that non-discrimination requirement uh, has been understood from the beginning, and, and Congress has adopted this understanding, that um, it's not just that you have a right not to be fired because of your religion. It's also the case that uh, workplaces are supposed to uh, accommodate people's uh, religious needs in the workplace, um, so long as doing so, and here's the, here's the statutory language, so long as the accommodation wouldn't impose an undue hardship. Well, what does that mean? Pretty early on, uh, courts started interpreting that phrase in a very narrow way, that is, in a, in a way that um, let employers sort of get away with not providing much in the way of accommodation. And there was a case... Uh, in the 70s called Hardison, which is kind of the focal point for the Supreme Court's most recent decision that we're going to be discussing. And in that Hardison case, um, in kind of a throwaway line, uh, the justices, the majority said, um, you know, undue hardship means anything more than a de minimis cost, right? And if you think about what de minimis means, I mean, this is basically like if it's any inconvenience to the employer whatsoever, then they didn't have to accommodate. And this seemed to many people at the time and has seemed ever since to not really do justice to the, the purpose of the, of the Civil Rights Act and its, its uh, original text. Um, so fast forward uh, to now, 
and um, uh, in this DeGroff case, you actually well, had. Let me ask. Sorry. Let ahead. me ask Rick. So did that. And, and since then, the court has pretty much and, and lower courts, too, have pretty much accepted that de minimis point. You know, there's been, uh, that's a great question. There's actually been some disagreement among lower courts, which is one of the reasons why it ended up with the Supreme Court, with some courts saying, well, de minimis means de minimis, it's not much. Some other courts would say, you know, we looking at other language in Hardis said we don't think they really meant that, and so they were requiring a bit more. And actually, even over the years, um, depending on the presidential administration and depending on the composition of the uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, uh, sometimes the government was actually interpreting it um, more generously. So it was kind of erratic. You know, there was no consistent rule. Employees couldn't be sure what to do. Courts couldn't be sure. And so this confusion over the years, which has been noticed by lots of judges, lots of justices, lots of scholars, lots of activist groups, uh, finally got its way up to, up to the Supreme Court for clarification. And, and that's what we saw in this recent case. Uh, you have a summary of the decision uh, at the Law and Liberty site. And the title there is Refreshing Unity on Religious Liberty that came out on July 4th. And you begin by noting the, the unity issue. This case was decided unanimously. Does that break, I mean, one issue you raise is that it, it breaks up the narrative of the court as a partisan, politicized institution. You, you think this, this unanimity on this case really stands out in some ways? Well, I think, it's, I think it does stand out. And as you said, it disrupts this narrative that I, I feel all too often gets um, propagated by uh, you know, the kind of um, legacy press because they, they kind of ignore the court for most of the year. And then they swoop in in June and talk about these hot button cases having to do with, you know, this year it was um, uh, racial preferences by universities. Last year it was abortion. But it creates an impression um, among you know, our fellow Americans that that the court is always divided along these partisan lines, five, four, six, three, what have you. And it's kind of a hobby horse of mine, but you know, in fact, and this is true every year, most of the court's cases are nine zero or eight to one, and they don't involve sexy questions hmm. or hot button questions. But what was interesting um, about Groff in particular is that, you know, religious liberty is often seen um, again online and and in some media outlets as being a partisan issue, as being a divisive one. Uh, you'll often see the, the New York Times putting religious liberty in scare quotes as if it's something to be sort of worried about or, or dubious about. Um, and in fact, not only was Groff 9-0, but as I described in the piece that, that you referenced, um, it's the latest in a series of a half dozen or so uh, unanimous decisions stretching back for several years involving... Um, the free exercise or the accommodation of religion. I don't want to oversell this. Obviously, there have been cases where the justices have been divided on church-state questions, uh, questions about school funding, questions about the, uh, you remember the, the, the praying football coach that, you know, that followed the script, I suppose. Uh, but when it comes to the basic principle that governments may accommodate religious believers in public space and at the workplace, and when it comes to the basic principle that discrimination on the basis of religion is wrong, we've seen a lot of unanimity, again, going back three decades. Hmm. Hmm. In this case, what was the rationale for the lower court siding with 
the U.S. Postal Service against Mr. Groff? Yeah, so, you know, lower lower courts are obligated to follow Supreme Court precedent, and the precedent on the books um, was this Hardison case that you and I discussed. And uh, the majority in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals thought that, you know, de minimis means de minimis. And in this case, um, accommodating Mr. DeGroff would have required the Postal Service to make some adjustments to its practice. There would have been some burden to it, but they didn't really get into the question of how much the burden was. Now, lurking in the background, and I, I should have said this earlier, um, one of the reasons back in the 70s why some people thought that the Civil Rights Act needed to be narrowed in this way is there was a misunderstanding of the Constitution's um, rule against religious establishments. Uh, there's a famous case you've probably heard of called Lemon versus Kurtzman. And, um, you know, in that case, the court had said that governments are not allowed to, quote, advance religion. So there was this idea in the air that, well, if Congress tells us we have to accommodate uh, these workers and have to provide them with this kind of solicitude, that's that's advancing religion. That's going to violate the Establishment Clause. So in a sense, the this this view of the Establishment Clause pressured, it, it, it brought about in a way, this narrow reading of the Civil Rights Act. Now, what's happened in the last 30 years is that the Supreme Court, in my view, has uh, corrected some of its doctrinal errors about the Establishment Clause. And just last year, the justices told us that Lemon's not really the law anymore at all. So in a sense, the moment was right for the Supreme Court to say in this Groff case, all right, now that we've kind of uh, put aside this mistaken understanding that uh, the Civil Rights Act is somehow an establishment of religion. Now we can actually look fresh at the text of the statute and see what Congress was trying to do in 1964. And we can come up with a standard that has a little more teeth and that better operationalizes what Congress was trying to do, which was to make the workplace more accessible to everybody. Yeah. You know, I imagine that in this case, Groff was not asking for uh, a shorter number of hours he would have to work every week. He wasn't asking for, I don't want, I don't want to work Sunday, so I get a 35-hour uh, work week instead of 40 hours. He would have made up the hours on, on other days. So there would have been equality in, in, in I mean, that's what I presume. You're exactly right. Yeah, yeah. When, when I read, you quoted from the lower court decision that said that Groff's actions if or his request, if acceded to, would quote diminish employee morale. <laughs> Rick, I I had to laugh when I read that. You really think letting the guy work on Saturday instead of would? I mean, did did did? I wonder if the justices had a, had a time not laughing when they read uh, <laughs> of that of that concern. I, I, what do you think? Well, I think you're really on to something important. And in fact, the, the, um, uh, the, the majority, uh, again, it was unanimous, so that's everybody, but um, you had a concurring opinion by Justice Sotomayor also, but all of the justices made the point that, look, um, it's, we're not saying that the employee always wins. Um, we're not saying they get whatever they want. You know, your example of, I just feel like working less hours for the same money, that would be unreasonable. That wouldn't be required by the statute. Um, what we're saying is that... Uh, if accommodations are workable and reasonable, then the employer has to make them, right? And there was this counter argument uh, swirling around in the lower courts uh, because I, I guess some of um, 
Groff's co-workers had, had filed a complaint that they kind of resented it, that he was um, asking to, to work on his Sabbath. And the courts made it clear that, that kind of thing doesn't count. So uh, another example would be, what if, uh, what if you've got somebody in the workplace who belongs to kind of an unpopular religion and is seeking an accommodation, and the employer thinks, oh man, the other employees, you know, they're not going to like this because they don't like that religion. Now, that doesn't count either. You know, um, dislike of somebody's religion doesn't count as a substantial yeah. burden. Yeah. We have the phrase there, quote, reasonable accommodations to the religious needs of employees and you know i'm i'm you know the the issue you you you've said the word reasonable uh, a few times and that's sort of yeah where we draw the line on what is reasonable but you know what stood out to me is the word needs not religious desires i mean things that a religion actually ex i mean did they go into this that that, that a religion expressly requires of its faithful no they uh, they didn't no, and you know, courts uh, as a general matter are kind of reluctant to get into those kind of questions. Um, so whether we're dealing with uh, the Civil Rights Act, as in this case, or you know, you and your listeners are familiar with uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which has come up in the court regularly. Obviously, we have the Free Exercise of Religion Clause in the First Amendment. As a general matter, courts tend to defer to religious believers when they say, um, "This is this is what I need for my." To exercise my religion now the courts do ask whether you're sincere mm -hmm. so um you know if they think you're faking you're not going to win but they don't want to get into kind of theological questions you know is this really required of christians or yeah. you know is this really required of jews and that's in my view that's probably appropriate that's not really something that courts are um very well suited especially if you know for better or worse, we have a pretty individualistic understanding of religion in American law, maybe maybe too individualistic, to be yeah. honest. But um, but in answer to your question, um, uh, they didn't get into that, and it was sort of assumed all along that this was a sincere claim. You note in your article that people need to remember on this issue that the Constitution protects religious freedom in, quote, two complementary ways not not just one way but two complementary ways uh please explain that to to us yeah and you know i have to confess uh this is a an idea that i i got as a college student from reading first things uh because it comes from father richard john newhouse but um it's it's sometimes thought that the first amendment has a tension built into it because the first amendment says um, congress is not supposed to limit the free exercise of religion and Congress is not supposed to pass a law respecting an establishment of religion. And on one account, the establishment clause is pushing religion away, and the free exercise clause is protecting it. And Father Newhouse always said, and this is um, my, my view as well, and it's the view that I think the court is coming around to, is that that's a mistake. The, it's, the, the First Amendment doesn't have like a pro-religion part and an anti-religion part. Rather, um, the First Amendment protects religious freedom first, by preventing state interference in religious matters, right? Preventing interference in, say, the internal self-governance of a church. That's what the Establishment Clause is about, right? Think of the paradigmatic establishment. You've got kings picking bishops. We don't, get, we don't have that here. And that protects religious freedom. So just as an example, a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court decided this case um, uh, called Hosanna-Tabor, which protected the right of a religious school to uh, select its own ministers. It was a teacher in that case. But the broad principle there is governments don't supervise 
religious questions. They don't compose creeds. They don't set liturgies. So in that sense, the no-establishment rule protects religious freedom because it protects the freedom of religious communities to govern themselves. And the free exercise clause is parallel to that and complementary to that. We can think of two ships sailing in the same direction. Um, the free exercise clause protects uh, the rights of believers not only to think what they want, but to act in accord with those beliefs. So once you get these two clauses kind of in parallel alignment, then you don't make the mistake the court made all those years ago in Hardison, where they said, well, here we've got Congress trying to protect religion, but oops, we've got the Establishment Clause, which limits it, and they bump up against each other. That's the wrong way to think about it. Yeah. You note that among secularists, maybe progressives in, in general, it's commonly the opinion that the Supreme Court has to stop, quote, privileging religion. That things like, yeah. why should churches be tax, tax exempt? You know, why, why, why can't uh, a faith membership in a church be sort of the same as membership in a political party? What makes religion so doggone special? What's, what's, what, what's the answer? I mean, well, maybe I should ask first, does the unanimity of the court on all these questions say, sorry, that argument's not going to go anywhere, at least at the, at the present time? Yeah, this is a, a place where, um, you know, perhaps uh, academic opinion or at least, uh, you know, uh, more, more progressive academic opinion is just at odds with the entire court. Now, in fairness, there was a time in the late 60s and early 70s when at least some of the justices expressed the view that um, it, would, uh, it would be unconstitutional if you defined religion in such a way that it failed to include deeply held philosophical beliefs. But the court resoundingly rejected that uh, in the, the famous Yoder case involving uh, the Amish. And that's been clear doctrine ever since. Our First Amendment protects the free exercise of a particular thing, i.e. religion. So why is religion special? Well, it's for the very um, pedestrian reason that religion is what's in the text of our Constitution. Mm -hmm. They could have said conscience. They could have said um, things I think are important, but it didn't. Now, interestingly, um, in, in a number of European um, human rights documents, a number of international human rights documents, in some state constitutions, the word that's used is conscience instead of religion. And you might think that's broader, but that's not the word we chose for the First Amendment. So purely as a textual matter, our, our foundational document singles out, you might say, privileges religion. But it's not merely, at least in my view, it's not simply a matter of, um, you know, gotcha, it's in the text. Um, the founding generation believed, and I think a lot of Americans still do, although, you're familiar with the rise of the nuns. This is changing. Um, but it was certainly a widely held view at the founding that religion involved um, obligations and duties of a different sort than other ones, right? That, that um, I mean, as, as uh, James Madison put it, you know, religion has to do with one's duties to God and the manner of discharging them. And the stakes were just higher there. And I'd add, I would add a third reason for thinking that's religion special, which is um, related to the textual point, but different. And it's kind of like, if you look over the history of the West for a long time, the, the essential drama of 
the development of states, of the development of constitutionalism, was this struggle between um, religious and political authority. Right? You can think back to, you know, the Emperor Galatius or um, you know, the Emperor Henry uh, or, or King Henry versus Thomas Becket, all of these dramas, right, that we have in our tradition, going back a long way, a sense that the state is limited and that there are authorities outside the state and that, and that one of those authorities is religious authority. And so it makes sense, if only as a matter of historical truth, to treat that dynamic as special. And our law reflects that. You mentioned a few minutes ago the Lemon case. And in your article, you referred to sort of the, the practical application of that case was the so-called lemon test. Uh, Rick, give us an example of the lemon test at, at work. Sure. Um, so lemons decided in the early 70s, and lemon itself was a case about um, a school funding arrangement where um, some states had decided to provide various forms of assistance to kids attending parochial schools. And um, the court invalidated these programs. And it did so on the basis of this, um, uh, this set of criteria that came to be called the lemon test. And it had three parts. The first part was laws have to have a, quote, secular purpose. Well, most laws do, so that didn't, that didn't come up very often, to be honest. Um, the third part, I'm skipping the second, the third part was there's not supposed to be excessive entanglement between religion and, and, uh, and government. And that's, that's still the law, actually. If you think about, you know, we don't want kings picking bishops or presidents picking creeds, that kind of entanglement, that's still unconstitutional. But the key part, the part that did the most mischief, was the second part of Lemon, which purported to outlaw policies that had the effect of, quote, advancing religion. And it was impossible for courts to apply that in a consistent, predictable, or principled mm. way. Because think of all the things that have the downstream effect of advancing religion. I mean, if you pay your employees and they give some money to the church, I suppose the government, by paying its employees, has had the effect of advancing religion. So this was a mess for a long time. And a big, in a sense, the story of First Amendment law for the last 25 years or so has been the cleaning up of the mess that was made by Lemons Part 2. And last year, the court finally said, look, that's just not the law anymore. We're not going to ask that question. We're going to ask other questions to make sure we don't have establishments of religion. But we're no longer going to engage in this strange inquiry into whether a policy has the downstream effect of advancing religion. Another place where this came up, Mark, was um, if you think of all of the, this was almost like a seasonal ritual, right? But all the cases about holiday displays at Christmas time or you know, menorahs during Hanukkah and so on. Um, people would challenge these displays as unconstitutional establishments of religion. And then courts would have to come in kind of like um, symbologists or, you know, semioticians and decide what does this, what does this menorah mean? And does the display of this menorah have the effect somehow of advancing religion? And again, the courts, I think, um, I think they were right to do this. They've, they've abandoned that line of inquiry. Yeah. Who wrote the opinion in, in this case? And do you have any, any take on, on the personnel factor? Uh, well, so the author, uh, here's Justice Alito, and um, uh, he is a justice who has uh, written a number of important uh, law and religion cases uh, during his tenure on the court. And yeah, frankly, he wrote some important law and religion cases when he was back 
on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, and as I mentioned, there was a concurring opinion uh, by Justices uh, Sotomayor and Kagan. And again, they weren't they, they joined the court's opinion. They weren't disagreeing, but they just wanted to clarify a few minor points. So, so this was the case. I mean, again, Justice Alito, as you know, was the author of the Dobbs case. That was six to three. That was not unanimous. Um, this case was pretty straightforward. There was there was no rhetorical fireworks in any of the opinions. Uh, no kind of dueling footnotes and um, little uh, jabs and gotchas and so on. It was very much a pretty efficient opinion. Not very yeah. long. I don't think this was a case where you know, it would be plausible to say, well, this happened because, you know, we got the three new judges during the Trump administration or something. That's that's not what happened here. I, it was it was nine zero. And I feel pretty confident it would have been nine zero ten years ago. We've certainly heard a lot less about this case than the other cases recently. The affirmative action say uh, how has among those who have responded, how has the opinion been received by legal scholars? So this has been a bit of a disappointment to me, I, I have to confess, and it might have been part of the motive for writing the little thing that, that you've been uh, quoting from. So um, again, it's a unanimous case about a principle that until relatively recently, um, you know, people on both sides of the political aisle would have agreed on and, um, you know, Linda Greenhouse in the New York Times would have been just as happy about it as, you know, the writers at uh, First Things or National Review. But instead, um, in a sense, this is a the, the religious liberty in scare quotes narrative is poisoning everything because there's been a fair bit of commentary, mainly from the more progressive side, um, sort of warning that, oh, yeah. you know, this opinion is going to open the door for all kinds of bad things. Um, you know, every every one of these religious accommodations cases, even if they have nothing to do with culture war issues, gets filtered in some people's minds through these culture war things. So, you know, you, you hear that... Um, What's going to happen now is uh, uh, right-wing conservative employees are going to insist on some kind of a um, opt-out uh, so that they don't have to sit near a, uh, an employee who's uh, LGBT or something like that. Um, and I, I just think those, um, to my mind, these kinds of criticisms are are far-fetched and um, uh, far-fetched in the sense that they're not likely to come true, but I'm also just, I'm not even sure they're in good faith, to be yeah. honest, because um, again, we're talking about the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Courts have been working with this uh, forever under this lower standard, admittedly, but you know, we've been doing the accommodation of religion for a long time, and I realize we're divided politically now, and I realize there's a lot of hot-button issues out there, but the, um, this constant return to the well, uh, the, the culture war well, by some of the critics is, is getting a bit frustrating. Do you see this decision as applying any to anything else besides employer-employee relations? Um, well, so yes and no. I mean, uh, this is a case about a particular statute, and a, uh, this particular statute is about the workplace. So the first part of, uh, you know, it's an interpretation of these terms, undue hardship that are, that are in um, Title VII. So it's about that context and that context only. It doesn't, um, you know, doesn't speak to what Title IX means or Title VI means or what have you. Um, on the other hand, uh, I do think, and I try to frame the thing this way, that because it's part of this string of cases where the justices, despite all of their disagreements, have unified on the basic idea 
that um, the accommodation of religion uh, is an appropriate enterprise in a pluralistic democracy, um, that it's not an inappropriate privileging, that it's not a nefarious establishment, that it's something that's worth doing uh, when you can, again, in a pluralistic society where people have different views and so on. Um, I think this is by, by um, reaffirming and kind of continuing that stream, I'm, I'm hoping that it has positive effects in other contexts. The article is Refreshing Unity on Religious Liberty, uh, Professor Garnett's uh, summary of an important decision for religious liberty. Thank you for joining us, Professor Garnett. That's been my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>